Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you've found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to yet another episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. Hard to believe we're in season four of this already. Good Lord. If you liked last week's episode about changing trends in group practices, I hope you're going to like this episode every bit as much. I mentioned before there was a mindset shift occurring. I gave you the context around that. We talked about it from a competitive advantage standpoint in our last episode. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about competitive strategy. You know it'll be a note-taking episode, so get your pad and pen ready for another wonderful cup of that meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Thanks, everybody, once again, for joining me on the show today. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode uh, about the mindset shift in group practices. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, you might want to pause this one, go back and take a a listen to that one, uh, because I I talked about the the change in, in mindset with a lot of people building groups and how we were entering what I termed the early mainstream with it. Um, and today I'm going to pick up kind of where I left off, I think. And we're going to talk about, uh, not the competitive advantages of, uh, group practices, which I kind of alluded to last time, uh, and where the the shift was occurring, but we're going to talk about competitive strategy today. And I think that the, the important piece of this, when we're, when we're talking about building groups is, is still that if you're not intentional and uh, really understanding, if you don't spend enough time early on in terms of what your strategy is, you can very easily build a mess. Okay. And I've, I've said that for a number of years, going back to the old place. And, you know, none of that has changed. And we still see a, a, a decent amount of it, candidly. And when I say building a mess, I'm talking about, uh, a business that's very poorly integrated um, with little systems and processes, consistency and continuity between locations, typically financially underperforming businesses um, that are a, a loose amalgamation of, of different types of practices and and those that barely yield enough free cash or enough cash flow to offset the debt service required um, uh, to to acquire them in the beginning. That's a dangerous place to be. Um, I like to say the bank will get paid. You may not. And that is altogether true. So a- as it relates to that, we we want to be intentional about if building a group practice is the right thing for us or not, first and foremost, yes or no. And if the answer to that is yes, how do we think through that competitive strategy at, at a high level, at least. And I'm going to give you con- some constructs around that. Um, first off, the, y'all have heard me probably cite 
quotations or or principles maybe um, from well, from a, a number of people, one of whom is Jack Welsh, uh, the late Jack Welsh. He was former chairman and CEO of uh, General Electric for 20 years. He's a career employee with GE, um, started out as an engineer with him uh, and rose to be CEO um, for the last 20 years of his career. He passed away a couple of years ago, and I think he retired in early 2000s, if I remember correctly. Arguably one of the greatest uh, business leaders of, of my time um, and of the last uh, couple of decades. Um, and, and Welsh created uh, a highly competitive organization. He he put them through a lot of change that ultimately was for the better, but a lot of people didn't like it when he was uh, when he was selling off different parts of the the business and obviously didn't like it when he was laying off a number of people. But it it turned out to be a, a very high performing uh, multinational conglomerate. Uh, of a business uh, and and one that was arguably from a leadership context, uh, the model of what corporate America was through the late 80s, 90s, early 2000s, um, and, and even after his tenure for that matter. Um, one of the things Welsh uh, is is famous for saying when it when he talks about strategy is that as a business leader and somebody ultimately responsible for strategy, you have to see things the way they are, not the way you want them to be. All right, let me say that again. You have to see things the way they are, not the way you want them to be. Now, if taken at face value, that quote could be a throwaway line. It's obvious, Perrin, right? Well, no, it's not. Because when we talk about strategy, a lot of us want to talk about a strategy from the business we desire to build, not the business we can build. There's a difference. Everybody has a vision. Some of us write it down. Some of us have a vivid vision for those who've read Cam Cameron Harold's book. Great book, by the way. Um, but just because you can carve it out on a typewriter and meditate on it and manifest it and really start to believe in it, doesn't mean you can actually execute it. And that's Welsh's point. The difference in the dreamers versus the doers is a chasm a mile wide. And that is where strategy goes off the road. You can have a, a great desire to build any type of a business, a group healthcare practice or otherwise. You ultimately get paid to execute on it. And if there are things that hold you back, that preclude you from being able to execute on it, your strategy doesn't matter if, if any at all. And we see this a lot, that somebody is, somebody is highly focused on what they think their strategy is. But when I start pushing on what their capabilities are, it's obvious to me in a pretty short period of time that they haven't sized up the situation appropriately based on what they have the capability to deliver. And when I say they, I mean the founder of the business as well as his or her um, leadership team or, or key, uh, key people in the organization, all right? So you have to see things the way they are, not the way you want them to be, all right? 
it is really, really important to understand and get behind that quote and really spend a little bit of time thinking about it relative to what you think, what you, what you hope to be able to build versus what you really have the capability of being able to build. And if those two things are divergent, you would rather, you would rather figure that out right now before you get over levered and, and strung too, too far between. And those that don't tend to make the same fundamental mistakes over and over again. So let's talk about this a little bit from uh, a bit of a strategic planning session. I get to do a number of these with a handful of uh, uh, legacy clients who I still work with. And and one of the pieces of a strategic planning session we go through is uh, a a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and and threats, S-W-O-T, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And what we ask the client to do uh, is to spend some time with his or her leadership team uh, independently and everybody go through what they feel like the strengths of the business are, what they think the weaknesses of the business are, where are the opportunities, and where are the threats. And then we tend to amalgamate all of those, all of that feedback into one main document and combine a handful of things where people said the same thing for, for each, which is good to know that they're on the same page, but also to get the wheels turning what they might have seen independent of one another. It's, it's pretty educational to go through this with a leadership team because not all of you see the same thing the same way at the same time. And that's a good thing. It can be at least. So specifically today, I'm not going to go through um, strengths because that's kind of unique to you. And to a degree, weaknesses can be as well. But it's really important to understand your weakness as the founder of the business, which is most of the audience uh, in this podcast. Most of you are founders of businesses. So for those that are out there, if you can't assess your own weaknesses, objectively and and in complete transparency and candor with yourself, then that is a shortcoming that could ultimately create business failure because the bulk of a buck ultimately stops with you. And if you can't build around those weaknesses with your leadership team, then you're probably going to spin your wheels and go in circles for an awfully long time until you end up running out of money. All right. So when we think about weaknesses, It's us as individuals and it's weaknesses of the business from an execution standpoint. Opportunities have to be phrased with ultimate objectivity. Anything could be an opportunity, but it doesn't mean that it has the likelihood of coming true. And this is when we start to hone in on the opportunities for your unique business in your local marketplace. Now, there may be a great opportunity to build a group practice. But if you are in an area that is um, far away from an economic center or very rural, um, and it's hard to recruit associates um, to, uh, to come into your location, your area, unless they're from there, then that can be a weakness. So yeah, the opportunity is there from a lack of competition standpoint, but 
what's the likelihood that you can really execute on that if you can't attract people to join you? Well, I mean, that's a weakness. That's different from a threat standpoint. A threat standpoint is typically threats are things you cannot control. Weaknesses you can control to a degree. Threats are you're on the receiving end of that. You're at the opposite end of the whip on that. So, for example, if you are um, uh, uh, you're building a specialty group and it is a referral-based type of a business, as most specialists are, well, where do you get your referrals? Meaning what general dentistry practices are referring patients to you? So one of the threats may be that the general dentists are, are trying to, to do more advanced clinical procedures that are ones that you've performed heretofore, um, but they're starting to, to pick the low-hanging fruit on the easy implants as, as if there is such a thing, right? And they're going to leave the hard ones to you. Well, okay, that's, that's a threat of a market dynamic that's changing, okay? Um, but it's, it's evolving over time, and you may be able to course correct around it. On the other hand, if you are building a, a specialty group and you look at your referral base of general dentistry practices and you have some level of what we call concentration risk, meaning you get 80% of your referrals from 20% of your referring sources or something like that, what would happen if uh, a private equity-backed DSO came in and bought up most of that 20% that referred you 80% of your revenue volume, it would disappear overnight more than likely, wouldn't it? That's a threat you can't control. It's really important to be able to categorize that threat with ultimate clarity and an understanding of just how big the threat is and just how likely it is to occur. Now, none of us in our strategic planning sessions several years ago would have um, listed a threat as a global pandemic. All right, so you you know you're not <laughs> you're not going to be able to capture all the threats that are out there. All right, a, you know a nuclear holocaust could be one of them. Is it likely? No, but is it possible? I guess. You know we don't need to spend a lot of time on global pandemics or nuclear holocaust. What we do need to understand are the threats we can't control that are that are within the market dynamic of possibilities? And if they are, what's our reaction? Are we proactive in terms of getting around the corner on it? Or if it did happen to us, uh, what would be the outcome and how would we react to it? And, and that is when we start sizing up threats uh, and building group practices, these are the ones that we really want to understand uh, in terms of a likelihood to occur, because if they do occur and you've borrowed a lot of money to buy a lot of practices and something comes in and, and you know, uh, causes a, a downturn in the revenue of the business by 20 to 25% all but overnight, you're probably not going to be able to turn around and rebound to grow revenue back that quickly, as quickly as you lost it. All right. So this is a little bit about pressure testing the economic viability of your model, of, of, of the group that you're trying to build. And these are things that thinking ahead about competitive strategy 
um, when before we even really start to build a group practice or depending upon the pace at which we want to grow, we do want to understand how all of that fits together um, and, and what we would do about it if it occurred to us. All right. So not out of the realm of possibilities, but when we talk about weaknesses. Those are weaknesses that we bring to the table as individuals and weaknesses of our business overall. The opportunities in the marketplace um, can be substantial or else you probably wouldn't be building a group to begin with. But we want to we get eyes wide open and be clear about what those opportunities are. And then the threats that we cannot control, what's the jeopardy to them? Um, because again, if we're personally guaranteeing loans, the bank may get paid, the bank will get paid, but you may not. And you want to make sure that you pressure tested the organization from a, a business model standpoint to get really, really comfortable and clear around all of that. So this is some of the way we think about competitive strategy for groups. And I think this is, you know, the, the mindset shift that I alluded to in the prior episode is, is one I led off by saying that um, it is it is something where we see more and more entrepreneurs building group practices uh, from a build and operate standpoint, uh, not a build and exit standpoint. Build and exit was very prolific going back, you know, four or five or six years pre-pandemic, uh, and and we saw a lot of exits of, of groups, somewhat successfully, some otherwise. Um, but I think in today's world, there are more of those that are that are build and operate for longevity, uh, for cash flow purposes. And they're not in a hurry to either exit or they're not in a hurry to get to a certain number of locations or a certain amount of revenue um, in a short-term period. And I, I said in the prior episode that that's a, a very healthy approach um, and one that I think is welcome in the profession. There is a There are a lot of competitive advantages to having a group versus a solo practice. I believe in that firmly, but it does not preclude you from the normal course of business as it relates to competitive strategy. Just because you're being more methodical or going about it uh, in a slightly slower pace doesn't absolve you of the responsibilities of strategic planning and understanding true competitive strategy for the businesses you want to build. If if you don't do that, you're equally equally likely to build a mess just as much as anybody else who's in a hurry to do it. All right. So completely avoidable or mostly avoidable, um, but things we still want to have um, uh, brass tacks about as as it relates to building that that type of group. And again, if I reiterate what Welsh said uh, around seeing things the way they are not the way you want them to be. That's really the mindset that you have to have when you start that process. And it's a healthy mindset to have um, as you evaluate um, the, the growth plan that you're in right now uh, on at least an annual basis, if not more, I would prefer it more on a quarterly basis, candidly, but at least on an annual basis. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of uh, things to think about uh, from a strategy standpoint. I'll, I'll close in saying that, you know, what I talked about last time, you know, the, the people who are in the early mainstream of building group practices and they're taking their time doing it, they're being more methodical, they're not based around exit, a um, little bit of a DIY type of an approach to building a, a group practice um, and ones that uh, probably want to maintain that, that, you know, 
doctor ownership type of a structure without a private equity influence. I think all of that is really healthy, you know, for lack of a better term, very commendable um, from a healthcare services standpoint and, and something that I think all of us have the opportunity to do and do very well. It's not unique to dental. We talk about things in the context of dentistry, but there, there's a growing segment of this audience that is that are non-dental professionals. They're in other healthcare service verticals, and I think it applies equally um, uh, to any of those just as it does to dentistry. So I think this is a, a, a great time to be contemplating building a group practice, and I think the mindset that so many of you are bringing to the market right now is, is very welcome. It's healthy, and it really gives me a lot of um, positive outlook for the profession, candidly. Not to say that private equity is negative in any way, um, but I just I, I, I don't think we need to be in a rush <laughs> to exit businesses prematurely, I guess is my point. Um, and I certainly look forward to uh, getting to interact with a lot of the entrepreneurs who are in this audience who are taking a more methodical approach uh, to their growth strategy in the coming years. So that's pretty cool, too. Really appreciate everybody being a listener and a subscriber to this show. Um, and I, I I see the downloads growing and I know our audience is growing because so many of you share the show with so many people. And that's um, that's such a rich reward for all of us who put so much time into it. Um, and, and I can't thank you enough for being the advocates of our business that you are with so many of your colleagues. That's, that's the best way for us to grow our audience. Um, and we're grateful for it for it every time I see the download spike. I know somebody else has discovered us and it's typically typically because somebody in the audience referred somebody to us. So that is really cool. Last thing for you is that um, Accelerate 2024, our conference in Puerto Rico uh, is open for registration April 24th through 28th. Uh, 24th through 27th, excuse me, which is a Wednesday through a Friday. Most people are staying over to Saturday or Sunday and making a weekend out of it. Um, registration is open. We are already seeing a lot of seats being filled up. We still have ample seats to go, um, but we certainly think that the conference will sell out. Going to limit it to probably about 60 to 65 attendees, I think. It is going to be rich with content. It's going to be heavy. And you know if you've been to one of our conferences in the past that um, uh, you're going to be fully caffeinated and it's going to be like drinking from a fire hose, just the way we like it. So I hope you can um, carve out of your schedule April 24th through 27th. Join us in uh, sunny Puerto Rico. It will be a fun time, a great venue, and it'll be warm. Looking forward to having you there. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.